Okay, but today we're going to actually um, finish our series on the Sermon on the Mount. Um, so we've reached the end, um, this, this brilliant collection of Jesus' teaching. His teaching on what life um, looks like. His teaching on what it should look and feel like to do life with Jesus and his followers. And all the way along, we've kind of seen that Jesus is it's actually he's pretty much more interested in our internal world than our outward actions. You know, we've been asking these questions like, how is our heart and what's driving us? And Jesus has said things like, you know, rather than congratulations, you're not a mass murderer. Jesus takes this a step further and says, actually, even a hateful attitude in your heart and even harsh words, they're not the standard for us. And it's not just committing adultery that's sinful. It's a lustful attitude inside of us that's asking for trouble. And when it comes to the question of motivation, are we driven by the fear of not enough or are we longing for the praises of man or just the accumulation of stuff or are we being drawn to Jesus and entrusting ourselves to his provision, his affirmation and his kingdom? And then finally, we've begun asking ourselves, who are we choosing? You know, this stuff begins then to make a difference in our lives by the choices that we make. We've looked at that in two key ways so far. In making judgments and how we pursue our good father in prayer, in persistent prayer. And then today we're asking that same question, same question again. Who are we choosing? Perhaps in a bit of a broader way this time. We're asking it in perhaps a bigger way than we've asked it in the last couple of weeks. It's got some wider reaching implications. So my rephrasing of this question today is, are we choosing Jesus? And are we going to choose his way and will we keep on choosing him? Um, in fact, I'm going to pray before we go any further. And Father, would you um, speak to us through your word today? Thank you for the way that you've already been speaking um, today and over these months as well, Lord, as we've um, journeyed together with um, this beautiful collection of, of your teaching. Jesus, we want to choose you today. So we choose to open our hearts, open our ears, open our minds to your Holy Spirit. Come speak. Come fill us afresh. Come and provoke us to change where we need to change. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right. I'm going to read. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 7, if you hadn't guessed that already. Um, Exciting for me, probably not as exciting for you. I bought a new Bible a few weeks ago, so I'm reading a translation that you might not recognize. This is the Christian Standard Bible. Sounds like a good idea, doesn't it? Like Christian and standard. Um, in case you are like me and you're interested in things like Bible translations, um, Bible translations usually fall into kind of two categories. There's like a word for word, which is called... Um, formal equivalence by the scholars and that just means like hey every word that's in that Hebrew or Greek sentence in the um, original versions that's just like translated into English they'll rearrange the words so it forms like coherent sentences because you know sentences were built in different ways in Hebrew and Greek so that's word for word translations um, but essentially what you see in those manuscripts is what you see in your Bible so ESV is a good example of that um, and then uh, you've got a type of translation that's called um, thought for thought 
or a dynamic equivalence um, is the other way of saying that. So they take what does the sentence say as a whole and how do we just like help this land for people in the 21st century when they're reading it. So it doesn't change the meaning of it, but it might reinterpret slightly kind of how that lands for us to make sense um, in our context. Um, so a version of that would be the NIV or the uh, NLT. And what I like about the, the CSV is it kind of blends both of these approaches, which I find really exciting. Maybe no one else does, but um, I'm, in, I'm into that stuff. And then you go sort of the other way on that spectrum a bit further, you get a paraphrase version like the message, which is um, not intended to be a word-for-word -word translation, but it's meant to complement those translations um, and just bring the Bible to life in a new and contemporary way. So, you know, that's kind of three approaches. There are a few other approaches out there, uh, but there's not really any like, you know, when... Among the mainstream translations, they're all good. So just like the best translation is the one that you actually read, is what I'll say. But anyway, I'm liking the CSB at the moment. So I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 7. Um, in my Bible, this is entitled Entering the Kingdom. And this is Jesus talking. He says, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who go through it. How narrow is the gate and difficult the road that leads to life, and few find it. Be on your guard against false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravaging wolves. You'll recognize them by the fruit. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? In the same way, every good tree produces good fruit, but a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit, neither can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that doesn't produce good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So you'll recognize them by their fruit and not everyone who says to me lord lord will enter the kingdom of heaven but only the one who does the will of my father in heaven on that day many will say to me lord lord didn't we prophesy in your name drive out demons in your name and do many miracles in your name then i'll announce to them i never knew you depart from me you lawbreakers strong stuff from jesus right We're going to look at these first couple of verses first, verse 13 and 14. And Jesus says, enter through the narrow gate. The gate is wide and the road is broad that leads to destruction. There are many that go through it, but how narrow is the gate and difficult the road that leads to life if you find it. So Jesus offers us this choice of a narrow gate and a difficult road or a wide gate and a broad road. And there's no prizes for guessing who this narrow gate is. But does anyone want to hazard a guess? Who could... Or what could Jesus be talking about? Who's the narrow gate? It's Jesus. Yes, you went to Sunday school. It's Jesus. Um, Jesus says later on in, um, in John's account of the gospel, John chapter 14, verse 6, he told them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He also talked, he literally told, told his disciples another time, he was the door. Jesus is the way. He's the only way that leads to life. There's no other option. You know, we can't earn our way into the kingdom of God. There's no magic spell, no divine incantation, uh, no great or daring acts that can win our place. You know, it's not a competition based on skill, ability, intelligence or good looks um, or anything else that's to do with ourselves. It's Jesus and Jesus alone who is the doorway to the kingdom of heaven who is the doorway to the life of the age to come and a renewed and restored relationship with the Father. 
And Jesus might show up in any number of ways that we don't expect. But it's always and only him who is the way. You know, we don't get to tell him who and how he saves. But it's only him that saves. You know, it's this stark. There are two options. We choose Jesus or we don't choose Jesus. Jesus isn't saying there are many ways you can choose, but pick me. So I say, no, there's just me and there's no one else. You know, most of the time, I'm really up for finding, finding nuance, for wrestling out an issue that maybe doesn't seem that clear. Like, I love exploring the grey areas. In fact, the more grey hair I get on my head, the more comfortable I am with grey areas in my life. But on this occasion, there is no grey, there's only black and white. It's Jesus or nothing. And as far as I'm concerned, I'm choosing Jesus. And choosing Jesus means choosing his way. Because if we're choosing Jesus, we're invited to follow his way. And Jesus presents us with two ways to live, two paths to walk down. There's an easy way, but that'll lead to destruction. There's a difficult road that leads to life. And, you know, this was an idea that was around in the early church um, and was around at, at the time of Jesus in Second Temple and um, Judaism. You know, the early church talked a lot about there being two ways to live. It's a common illustration, the way of life and the way of death. Um, one of the earliest known bits of Christian writing, I've talked about this before, it's called the Didache. Um, and it's probably dated to sometime in the first century, maybe a little bit later. Um, it didn't make it into scripture. Um, in fact, this is really, I find this really fascinating. Again, might not be up your street, but I got this little book for Christmas called Early Christian Writings. Um, and some of this is like some of the first letters that um, Christians were writing to each other. They didn't all make it into the Bible. There's one I was reading that was really great um, by a guy called Clement, who was a bishop of Rome. He's writing to the church in Corinth. I thought, this is really interesting. This is going well. He, this sounds like the kind of thing that you would read in the Bible. And then he started talking about the phoenix and how the phoenix was such a great illustration for Jesus. And I thought, oh, this is why this didn't make it into the Bible. Anyway, um, but there are no phoenixes in the DDK. Um, but it does start out, it's got, it's got two parts to it. It talks, one's a, a manual for church life. It talks about baptisms and communion and saying the Lord's Prayer three times a day. Um, and the first part of it is called the two ways. Um, I'm going to read a few bits from these two ways and see if any of these phrases sound familiar to you based on what we've been talking about for the last couple of months. So it starts like this. There are two ways, the way of life and a way of death. And the difference between these two ways is great. The way of life is this. Thou shalt love first the Lord thy creator, and secondly thy neighbour as thyself. And thou shalt do nothing to any man that thou wouldst not wish to be done to thyself. Um, this translation was like written 120 years ago, which is why it's got all of these and thous. Okay. Um, and it says this. What you may learn from these words is to bless them that curse you, to pray for your enemies, and to fast for your persecutors. Does this sound familiar if we've read the Sermon on the Mount? For where is the merit? In loving only those who return your love, even the heathens do that. But if you love those who hate you, we love nobody to be, the, to be your enemy. Beware the carnal appetites of the body. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other one to him as well, and perfection will be yours. Should anyone compel you to go a mile, go another one with him. If someone takes your coat, let him have your shirt too. If someone seizes anything belonging to you, do not ask for it back again. You could not get it anyway. 
Give to everyone that asks, without looking for any repayment, for it's the Father's pleasure that we should share his gracious bounty with all men. A giver who gives freely, as the commandments direct, is blessed. No fault can be found in him. It goes on to say, do not equivocate in thought or speech, for a double tongue is a deadly snare. The words you speak should not be false or empty phrases, but fraught with purposeful action. You're not to be avaricious or extortionate. You must resist any temptation to hypocrisy, spitefulness or superiority. You're to have no malicious designs on a neighbour. You're to cherish no feelings of hatred for anyone. Some you are to reprove, some to pray for, and some again to love more than your own life. And a bit later it says, Beware of lust, my son, for lust leads to fornication. Likewise, refrain from unclean talk and the roving eye, for these two can breed adultery. Tell no lies, my son, for lying leads to theft. Likewise, don't be overanxious to be rich or to be admired, for these two can breed thievishness. Learn to be meek, for the meek are to inherit the earth. Don't parade your own merits or allow yourself to behave presumptuously, and don't make the point of associating with persons of eminence, but choose the companionship of honest and humble folk. So make confession of your faults and don't come to your prayers with bad conscience. This is the way of life. All of that really rings familiar for me about all this stuff that we've talked about from the Sermon on the Mount. It makes sense to me that when the first Christians, the first people to follow the way of Jesus, when they started to think about what life following Jesus looked like, they looked to the Sermon on the Mount. Or you could look at the book of James. In fact, if you've been following this series on the Sermon on the Mount, I challenge, go read through James. So much will jump off the page at you saying, this is James saying the same stuff that Jesus is saying, just maybe with some slightly different words. Over and over, there are parallels with Jesus' teaching. It's because the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' manifesto for life in the kingdom. If you want to choose the way of life that Jesus offers, start with the Sermon on the Mount. What Jesus offers us here is the difficult road that leads to life. He's not saying it's easy, but he's saying it's the way to life. So let's put it, put it into practice. And he gives us a warning about a certain type of person who doesn't walk in that narrow way. A type of person whose actions don't match up with their words. They may say they're about the Lord's work, but when you look at the fruit of their life, they're actually nothing of the sort. This is verse 15. Remember, it says, Be on your guard against false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravaging wolves. See, they've not dealt with their heart. They've not dealt with the stuff inside that works its way out. Because you'll recognize them by their fruit. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? In the same way, every good tree produces good fruit, but a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit, neither can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that doesn't produce good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, so you'll recognize them by their fruit. Now, false prophets. False prophets are not people who make inaccurate predictions or whose prophecies don't come to pass, just in case you're in that seat today. Maybe you prophesied something and it didn't happen, or maybe someone prophesied something over you and it didn't happen. That doesn't make you a false prophet. It doesn't make them a false prophet. False prophets, those who prophesy with a false motive, usually telling whoever they're prophesying to whatever it is that they want to hear and whose life doesn't line up with the things they say. You know, if you want to see some false prophets today, 
maybe look at those using the name of Jesus to declare something unrighteous as righteous. Maybe look at Patriarch Kirill and the Russian Orthodox Church who are, quite frankly, attempting to baptize a violent and unjust war in the name of Christianity and Russian nationalism. They're using the name of God to justify bloodshed. That's what a false prophet looks like. So don't panic if someone gave you a prophetic word that was just a bit off. Because also the prophetic is not a foregone conclusion. It's an invitation to participate in the purposes of God for your life. Jesus doesn't expect to do all the work and you just to show up and get all the credit, right? He wants to, he wants to partner with you along the way. So false prophet, someone who gives off the appearance of goodness, but whose life is not producing the fruit of good works. They're a wolf in sheep's clothing, uses the appearance of righteousness to their own greedy ends. And that's the bad fruit. The fruit what grows is an indication of the health of the tree. Again, Jesus is saying that eventually what's in your heart is going to leak out. It's going to come out somehow, no matter how well you dress it up. And if we're choosing Jesus, we have to take his invitation to walk his narrow way seriously. Otherwise, Jesus says in verse 19, those who use his name for their own advantage will be cut down and thrown into the fire. You know, the link back here to when earlier on in chapter five, Jesus talks a few times about um, being thrown into hell. And this is, this is really interesting to me. Like the Greek word hell, that's translated hell in most of our Bibles, is a Greek word called Gehenna, which um, literally means the Valley of Hinnom, which was a physical place just to the southwest of the city of Jerusalem. Um, and it's been the scene over um, in the time of the kings, some of Judah's darkest history as a place where um, children were sacrificed to false gods. Uh, and it became a place where um, bodies were buried and it became the city's garbage dump. Um, it was the place where useless things were disposed of. Now, the concept of hell is worth your time, but another time. Um, but what I think Jesus is doing here, rather than talking about our eternal destiny, when he talks about being cast into the fire or being thrown into hell, being thrown into Gehenna, the valley outside the city, he's actually talking about our usefulness to the kingdom of God. I'm not saying that's a conversation that doesn't exist somewhere, but I think in this context, Jesus is saying, if we don't get our heart, our motives and our actions lined up with him, if we're not choosing him with every part of our lives, then we may as well be thrown on the city's garbage dump because we're useless. That's the place that useless things get thrown away. So don't become useless to the purposes of God. Choose Jesus, choose his way of living. And that looks like putting this stuff into practice. So we choose Jesus and we choose his way. And then just more like fun, slightly troubling, slightly terrifying stuff in verses 21 to 23 from Jesus. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, do many miracles in your name? Then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. If we're choosing to accept that Jesus is the way, 
if we're choosing to follow in his way, whatever that means. Um, the biggest mistake we can make is not to choose Jesus himself. Choosing Jesus means choosing Jesus. It's not just saying yes to him, but it's saying yes to all of him, to knowing him, to being with him, to knowing his will. I don't want to be someone who Jesus turns around and says, I didn't know you, John, if that is your name. You know, we can do all the stuff, like the cool stuff as well, right? The fun stuff, you know, like prophesying, performing exorcisms, doing miracles, right? That sounds really fun, at least it does to me. But if we miss Jesus in it, we're completely missing the point. Jesus came to earth to live, to die, to be resurrected, not simply to get us into heaven, but that we might know him and be known by him. And this is an interesting tension, isn't it? Because we talk a lot about being saved by grace. And that's the message of the New Testament, right? That we're saved by grace, not through works. So none of us can boast about the stuff that we've done to earn our way in. But there's something about the way we live our lives in relation to Jesus that he's looking for. When Jesus is talking about the kingdom of heaven here, is he talking about life after death? Or is he talking about the kingdom of God coming here and now in our everyday lives? I don't know. The answer is probably yes. Because it's not entirely clear, right? We know the message is we're saved by grace. It's not by our works. But there's this process of sanctification growing, going on. That's the process by which we're transformed, by which we're changed by the Holy Spirit. We're transformed into the likeness of Jesus as we follow him. And it happens as we partner with him, we say yes to him day by day by day. I love this passage from John 15. It might help us wrestle with this a little bit more, help us figure out what Jesus is actually asking of, of us. It's John 15, 1 to 10, the vine and the branches. Jesus says, I'm the true vine and my father's the gardener. Every branch in me that does not produce fruit, he removes. He prunes every branch that produces fruit so that it will produce more fruit. So more of that sort of chopping things up, just missing. Uh, in fact, he goes on to talk about stuff being thrown into the fire again here. Um, you're already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Remain in me and I in you. I like that. I think this draws these two concepts together. It's like you're already clean, but remain in me. The work's done, but stay here with me. Just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine, neither can you unless you remain in me. Some translations say abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. If anyone does not remain in me, he's thrown aside like a branch and withers. They gather them, throw them into the fire and they are burned. There we go again. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, Ask whatever you want, it will be done for you. That makes me think of like a couple of weeks ago when Neil was talking about asking, seeking and knocking. My father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. As the father has loved me, I have also loved you. Remain in my love. And this is the bit that I think we often forget. If you keep my commands, you'll remain in my love. 
just as I have kept my father's commands and remain in him, his love. Now he's retreading some of the same ground here about bearing fruit, about branches that don't produce fruit being cast into the fire. I love this. love this idea of remaining in Jesus. He's called us clean, but calls us to remain in him. And one of the ways we do that remaining is by listening to and following his commands, by keeping them. But to be able to do that, we need his help. We need his Holy Spirit dwelling in us, healing us, restoring us, transforming us. We need that depth of relationship to know what his commands are for each moment so that we begin to think like him and act like him. And that's what remaining to me looks like. That's what abiding to me looks like. It's not just having great quiet times or powerful times of worship, but it's that simple obedience, simple listening to Jesus and doing what he says. Then whether or not Jesus is talking about the day by day entering in, breaking in of his kingdom, or he's talking about some kind of end time judgment day reality, by abiding in and remaining in Jesus, we're positioned for whatever comes along. Because let's be honest, most of us, we're not just living for some far off day, are we? We're living to see the kingdom of God come here today. That's why we pray in the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As a daily prayer, not just a one-time event. If all we're interested from, from Jesus, is some sort of eternal fire insurance, we've totally missed the point. Jesus offers you life in all his fullness now. So let's choose him and let's choose his way. Just remember how we started this series back in some time ago, earlier this year. Was it February? Who knows? Maybe it was March. But um, we started this and I shared from Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 27. Where Jesus says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the rivers rose, the wind blew and pounded that house. It didn't collapse because its foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house in the sand. The rain fell, the rivers rose, the winds blew and pounded on that house and it collapsed. It collapsed with a great crash. And Matthew rounds out this account by saying, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching because he was teaching them like one who had authority and not like their scribes. You know, we can listen to these words of Jesus and think they sound good, but if we don't put them into practice, we're just leaving ourselves vulnerable. So let's put them into practice. Let's choose Jesus today. Let's respond to him. You know, today is Palm Sunday. Um, it's the day we remember how Jesus made his triumphant entry into Jerusalem the week before. He was crucified, died and rose again. And on his way into the city, the crowds cheered, laid down their coats in front of him. They waved palm branches and they shouted, Hosanna, which means God save us now. Or like glory to the one who saves is kind of what it means in context. And Jesus comes into the city, he's riding, he's not riding on a war horse. He's not coming to kill all the Romans. 
and take the city back. He comes in on a donkey, like a, a baby donkey for that matter. Because he comes to lay down his life as a ransom for many. He's upholding his teaching to turn the other cheek, to love his enemies all the way till it costs him his life. And we get to welcome that same humble king today. We get to choose him. We get to cry out like the crowds. Hosanna, glory to the one who saves. We get to lay ourselves down before him. We get to choose him today. So then about you. I'm going to choose Jesus today. Will you choose him with me? Whether it's the first time or it's the thousandth time. Will you choose Jesus with me today? Because our lives have to be a continual choice of Jesus, of his way, of knowing him, of, of drawing near to him, of remaining in his love. Choosing him when things are hard, when circumstances don't feel like they're going all the way that we would want them to, like we've been singing today. That was a word for today as well, man. Um, John Wimber who led the Vignon movement through the 80s and 90s, said, the way in is the way on. Choosing Jesus is the doorway into the kingdom. And choosing him is every step of that road together. So we stand with me. We'll pray and close this thing out. So those of you who got kids, we'll go and collect them in just a moment, but let's pray together first. Whatever it looks like for you to put yourself in a position to say yes to Jesus, if that's what you want to choose today. Jesus, we choose to choose you today. We say yes to your way for our lives. Whatever that looks like, we choose to be people who choose you every day, every step of the way. Lord, we choose to do the things that you ask of us as we get to know you, as we hear your voice, as you direct and guide us. God, we choose to be people who choose you, yourself. We choose to be people that draw near to you, who know you and who are known by you. That our lives might begin to look like you. Jesus, we choose you today. Amen. If you have chosen Jesus for the first time today, I'd love to just have a conversation with you and talk about what that means for you and for your life. I'll be hanging out over here at the info point, but for everyone else, if that's not you today, we're gonna to pop some music on. If you've got kids, go grab them from Game Changers, Explorers, Little Movers. And we'll be back next Sunday afternoon for Easter Sunday, we're gonna to celebrate together to be loads of fun. Have a great weekend. See you guys soon.